And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I thank Emily so much for stepping in at the last minute at Dr. Dyke's request to lead us this morning. As you can tell, our uh, much of, well, our orchestra is out, and we had our choir out uh, this week, and so we were just at a place where we needed somebody to lead us in worship, and I'm so thankful that Emily stepped into that. I, I love seeing God use the body. Emily's a part of us. She is one of our own, and so uh, thank you for sharing. She has a beautiful voice, but more than that, she's got a beautiful heart, and I just love her heart for the Lord and for worship, and the opportunity we have today to be led into his presence. She's already sung a benediction, and so we could just say amen and leave, but don't, okay? Because I'm about to preach, all right? Uh, I, if, you, if you can't preach after that, then, then you probably ought to turn in your Bible, all right? You may need to go back to the seminary. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 8 with me. We're continuing in our series of journeying through the book of Daniel. And as we look at the book of Daniel together, we've seen amazing things about the future, things that are yet to come. And we've seen how God spoke to Daniel in a very trying time and gave him comfort based on the things that are yet to be fulfilled. And my encouragement to you is that you would continue to track along and not see this as history because some of this is uh, prophecy that's already been fulfilled. And you won't just see it as pipe dream for something that's in the future. And that probably really begs that question for all of us. So, Pastor, what is the point of all this prophecy? I mean, if we really know what is going to happen in the end, so what? How does that impact today? What does that do for my life right now? Well, I'm glad you asked. Stay there in Daniel, but I want to read a passage from the New Testament just momentarily. So stay in Daniel, but in 2 Peter, we see something powerful. 2 Peter 3, 11 and following says this. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, and he had described the destruction, what holy and godly lives you should live looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. And on that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away with flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, listen, listen, make every Effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. Is that not rich? I mean, to think, so what? It's coming. We know the Lord's coming. We know that his judgment's coming. We know that he will make things that are wrong right. What should we live? He said, oh, you should live godly lives. Oh, you should live pure lives. Oh, you should live peaceable lives. You should live your life encouraging others to know that which is to come and live blameless in his sight. I mean, to think, while you're waiting for these things to happen, may or may not describe you. Some of you have forgotten that these things are going to happen. And it's good for us to be reminded because the writer here says very pointedly, as you are waiting, you need to be waiting and watching with expectation. You need to be working and longing to hurry that day along. Now, I know a lot of Christians who deal with prophecy in a different kind of way. They love to play the game, pin the name on the Antichrist, right? We're not going to play that game today. What they want to do is they want to figure out every detail and every time frame and every single one of all of the symbols that are there. Well, that's not our interest. Our interest is that we would know what's coming so that we would live differently today. That we would know what's coming so we would live pure and peaceable lives. And so because of that, you need to understand this. I don't know who the Antichrist is, and you don't either. Nobody does. In fact, the Bible says, and we've looked at this in 2 Thessalonians that he will not be revealed until after the rapture has happened so I'll say yet again if you think you know who it is you've been left behind alright so don't play those games don't try to go there but Daniel's prophecy here in chapter 8 we started last week to talk about it and as we looked at it we begin to see that it is to the effect that there is an antichrist coming 
There's one coming at the end of the age that will epitomize and personify evil and he will rain down destruction on the earth and ultimately Jesus Christ will destroy him. He'll be the very first inhabitant of hell as he's cast into the lake of fire. And we see that the interesting thing is how the Bible all fits together. You see, oftentimes with prophecy, there is a near prophecy and that becomes a shadow for something else. And that's what we see here. We're going to look in chapter 8 at three characters We mentioned them last week. There are are three different unique characters that we'll see. And as we look at them, as we consider them, we'll see that God is foreshadowing something that is to come. So let's look together if we can at Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 8. And as we look there, I want you to see that two of the figures are historical. They have already lived out their lives and their existence here on earth, and one is prophetic. And those two historical characters prefigure, pre-shadow the Antichrist that is to come. So the first two are just a picture of the character and the nature of of Antichrist. And today we're going to look at all three very briefly. Starting in Daniel chapter 8, beginning with verse 8. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. In the large horn's place grew four prominent horns, pointing in the four directions of the earth. And then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and to the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. So the very first of our three characters is called the notable horn or the great horn. Now, if you've not been with us, I want to encourage you to go back and watch last week's message and, and uh, study along with us from uh, chapter 8 because you see all of this symbolism of these animals like the goat here are pictures of nations. And horns typically represent kings or kingdoms. And we understand very pointedly this. The notable horn on this goat is Alexander the Great. He was the great great Greek leader and he illustrates the power of the Antichrist. I want you to see that. He illustrates the power of the Antichrist that is to come. If you look back at Alexander the Great, he was such a dominant force and Daniel is writing hundreds of years before the rise of Alexander the Great and the the amazing thing is that Daniel is given such a clear picture of where he is. We looked last week that he was there in Babylon and yet he was transported by a river in Susa Susa would become the capital many, many years later, but at that time it was just a bywater, backwater kind of a place, and the Medes and the Persians took over from Babylon, and when that happened, Daniel was taken there, and he saw that they would take over Babylon. And if you have followed along with us, all I'm saying is very simple. Daniel was given pre-written history. He was given a picture of everything that was to come. He was inside the kingdom of Babylon and was given a picture that Babylon would be swallowed up by the Medo-Persians, Greek would take over Medo-Persia, and then Rome would take over Greece. And as we see that succession, we see God using these visions in a very miraculous way. So he's followed in the text by one who's referred to in verse 9 as the little horn. And the little horn, according to our understanding, is a reference of somebody that grew out of Alexander's kingdom. Alexander's horn was broken off, and it says that four horns grew out of this. Now, I want to go back for just a moment and review what we said last week, because I gave you some insight into this goat, into Alexander. We talked about four different things, his rise to power. You may want to jot these down just very briefly. We looked at his rise to power. Look at verse 5. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. And we know from history that Alexander the Great in 12 short years captured the entire world. We know that his uh, amazing speed of conquest was absolutely unparalleled in that day and almost any day since. He was 33 years old when he had captured the entire world. And Alexander is described here as one who moved so swiftly that his feet didn't touch the ground. It's a a reference to how rapidly he took over. Now, we also looked in an interesting way at the prophecy from these first verses concerning his reputation that he would be called the great horn or the prominent horn. And we recognize that Alexander certainly earned that title that they gave him, that moniker, Alexander the, help me out, 
great. They called him the great one. He was the son of a man named Philip of Macedon. And Alexander as a teenager fretted because his father was so good at military conquest, he was scared that by the time he took over, there wouldn't be anything left. And I mentioned to you that at 33, he sat down in a drunken stupor in a state of depression and cried and wept because there was no other countries for him to conquer. He was a man of notable, notable fame. And his reputation spread. What a world ruler. And the prophecy talks about him ruling over and coming over the Medo-Persian Empire. Six and seven tell us that. And we said last week that he came to them. And the Bible says here that as that goat came to the ram, he trampled it and literally stomped it to death. It's a picture of the power, his rise to power, and then his reputation as the king. We move forward, though, and according to this text, Daniel had said all these things would happen. And then there was a remarkable death, and we just read about it in verse 8. What did verse 8 say? At the height of his power, the horn, what happened to it? It broke off. He was killed, and Alexander, when he was 33 years of age, was taken out by God. No human hand, no instrument of earth, but it was God's hand that took him out. And then we looked at the reorganization of his kingdom. Now, it says here that the great horn was broken off, and what grew up out of that head? four horns. If you are a student of history, you know that about 20 years after the death of Alexander the Great, four of his generals took over the kingdom. They divided it up. There was Seleucus, there was Ptolemy, uh, there was Cassander, and there was Lysimachus. All four of these generals took uh, portions. And now we come to the ninth verse, and we've read this, that out of one of them, out of those kingdoms, one would come. So you've got Alexander, the great horn. He is uh, taken out of power by God, four generals rise up, and one of those would begin to emerge as a leader that Daniel saw. And again, he's seeing these things some 300 years before they ever happened. Pre-written history. By the way, that's why liberal Bible scholars and interpreters try to give Daniel a late date. They try to say, well, Daniel was written after those things happened. That's amazing to me because we understand and know from uh, history and archaeology that Daniel was written during the days of his captivity in Babylon and he wrote these things with an eye to the future and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And I continue to tell you that, church family, because you need to know that one of the greatest arguments for the Bible and its reliability is pre-written history. Anybody can prognosticate on Monday right? There are a lot of Monday, Monday, Monday morning quarterbacks that can tell you all about what should or shouldn't have happened in a game. There are a whole lot of Monday or even Sunday afternoon Baptists that like to eat fried preacher and they go and they say, well, let me critique the sermon that just happened. But pre-written history is a whole nother subject entirely. And Daniel, under the inspiration of God, was given these great visions. And the angel we saw last week, Gabriel, came to him and gave him the meaning of those visions even before they happened. Well, let's go back to the story. We're going to learn about another man that comes out of one of Alexander's generals, and he would rule over the kingdom. And as we look back in history, we know that the Seleucids came to power. Seleucus was the one of those four generals. And the scripture references this one who would come out as the little horn. So we've seen the big horn and the little horn. And in a minute, we're going to see the final horn. But he comes from insignificance and becomes great. Let's look on in verse 9 and following. And then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east and toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army. Who is that? That would be God, the commander of all of heaven's army. He challenged this one. And how? By canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion, so the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown and the horn succeeded in everything it did. When you go back 
in historical sources and you look at what happened during a unique time period, we find a fascinating fulfillment of Daniel's words. If you happen to have a Douay translation of the Bible, it includes between the Old and the New Testament, the Apocrypha. Anybody have a Bible uh, maybe at home that's got the Apocrypha in it? Anybody? There's a few of you. Well, the Apocrypha is not Scripture. It is not inspired by God. However, it is good history. And it gives us an indication of what happened between Malachi and Matthew. It gives us some idea of the history that happened during those 400 years of silence that happened in the preparation for the Messiah. Now, as we think about it, this prophecy is here fulfilled in the name of a person by, or in a person by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Everybody say Antiochus Epiphanies. Now that's a strange sounding thing and I'm not just going to preach history but I think it's fascinating for us to see how God was at work. You probably see in the name Epiphanies the idea of epiphany. It's, it's manifest. It's shown an aha. He called himself Antiochus God manifest. He believed himself to be God. And according to history, he was given to the persecution of people. And he illustrates the cruelty of the Antichrist. You may want to jot that down. So Alexander represented and illustrates the power of the Antichrist. And Antiochus Epiphanes will represent the cruelty of the Antichrist that is to come. And what a cruel man he was. Let me tell you a little bit of the history. On his way to attack Egypt, we read in history uh, that this prophecy began, first of all, by going in different directions from Jerusalem and Egypt. And while he was on his way to conquer the world, he was stopped by the armies of Rome, and it infuriated him. So he turned his attention to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, on that besieging, he set his armies loose, and Antiochus Epiphanes killed 80,000 Jews. And he sold 40,000 more into slavery. And you need to hear this. He ransacked the temple. Well, what does that mean to them? Well, the temple was everything to them. That was the place where God said, I will reside and you will worship me. And he came into the temple and he took the gold. And he came into the temple and he took the silver. And he plundered the golden altar of incense. And he stood before the inner veil. And he decided to destroy the Jewish religion altogether. In fact, Antiochus Epiphanes, who wanted the whole world to be of Greek culture said it is now illegal for you to practice as a Jew he said it's illegal for you to read or own a copy of scripture and not only did he say it was illegal he burned every copy of the Torah he could get his hands on now imagine if that was your faith tradition imagine if a foreign leader came into the United States and began to burn our Bibles and call it illegal to gather in church that's what he did he said that the practice of circumcising your children was no longer allowed. In fact, it was a capital offense. There's a story of two ladies who had babies and in their desire to be faithful to the Torah and faithful to Yahweh, they circumcised their eight-day-old eight boys and as they did, Antiochus heard of it and he had the women brought before his court and he ran both of the babies through with a sword and he tied them to the bodies of those mothers and marched them through the city to the highest pinnacle of the wall and he threw them over the wall. You understand the statement that I just made. That he illustrates the cruelty of the Antichrist. There's another tragic story of a mother who had seven sons. And they gathered for worship and they were reading from the scroll. And in the midst of reading from that scroll, it was forbidden for any of the Jews in the city to, to control, uh, uh, to conduct any of practices of, of Judaism. And yet in their desire to do so, he had all seven of them arrested. And he cut out the tongues of all seven of those boys. And he fried them alive one by one on a flat iron in front of their mother and then killed the mother. They changed his name, not to his face, but all around him. They didn't call him Antiochus Epiphanes. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman or the insane. 
They, they said he was drunk with blood and drunk with power and drunk, bloodthirsty and angry and hated the Jews. And he did everything he could to set himself up as God. And he came to one place, an interesting place, where he walked into the very holy of holies in the temple with a sow pig in his hands. And he slit the throat of the pig and he sprayed the blood of that pig all over everything holy. The Ark of the Covenant. All that he had left, any of the vestiges of the gold that were there, he sprayed it. And you can't imagine the, the absolute horror as a Jew. Everything that we have longed for in all of our years to be with Yahweh, the holiness of the temple and the worship of that place was now desecrated. And the Bible talks about the abomination of desecration. It talks about it in the Old and the New Testament. Jesus prophesied even further beyond Antiochus that this would happen. Basically what I'm telling you, if you take the power of Alexander and the cruelty of this man Antiochus and you roll them up into one and multiply that times a thousand then you would begin to touch the hem of the garment of the Antichrist that is to come when we talk about great tribulation there is coming a day of God's wrath when the Holy Spirit is taken out of this world because the church has been removed and we see here in this man unbelievable things in fact in the book of second Mac well let me give you verse 11 he challenged the commander of heaven's armies and by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and destroying his temple instead of the feast of tabernacles he set up the feast to Bacchus and to Saturn and he forced the priest to be a part of the celebration. They even brought temple prostitutes into the holy temple of Israel. And they did all kinds of things, making the Jewish practice illegal. Josephus records, this is another historian, not biblical, but outside the Bible, but reliable. Josephus records of a general named Jason who was under the command of Antiochus, and he set up Olympic games outside the temple. And you say, well, that seems fairly harmless. But they forced the priest to be a part of it. And you say, well, that sounds not too bad either. I mean, after all, most clergymen I know probably need a little exercise on their lunch break, right? But you see in that culture... They practiced Olympic Games completely naked. And they stripped down all of the various people that would be a part of that, including the Jewish priest. And in shame and dishonor, made the Jewish priest play their games. It, it tells us this in Second Maccabees uh, chapter 4. Listen, that the priest had no courage to serve anymore at the altar, but despising the temple and neglecting the sacrifices, hastened to be partakers of the unlawful allowance in this place of exercise after the game of discus called them forth. So he puts together these games and makes them play and makes them a part of it. Maccabees was just writing down smidgen of the cruelty of this madman well as we move forward and think about that the the little horn Antiochus was simply trying to strip every vestige of their faith and the scripture talks about the desecration of the temple and so we understand that he was a madman and I would bet if you were in Daniel's situation and you had gotten this kind of a vision, it would have stirred you. So what comes next in our text? What happens next? Well, Daniel hears two angels talking to one another. Look with me, if you will, a little further in verse 13 and verse 14. And then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. And one of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple of heaven's armies be trampled on? And the other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the temple will be made right again. I think that would immediately be the question you and I, I would ask. If we went through an invasion, if we went through persecution, we would say, oh God, how long? is this going to last God I can't believe you would let this happen in the first place but now that it's happening when will it end can you see that with me yes or no I, I can just see Daniel going God I can't believe the things that I'm seeing what shall we do how long will the Lord continue 
And one of the angels speaks to the other and asks that question. And the answer comes out literally 2,300 days. Now, now the Hebrew word here means morning evenings or evening mornings, depending on how you render it. And the thought would be that there would be 2,300 such days. Literal 24-hour periods of time, I'm not sure that that would be the time that the atrocities would cease. Some scholars disagree on this, and some say, well, an evening and a morning sacrifice. So there would be two, so you could cut it in half. Instead of 2,300, it would be 1,150. But if it was 1,150, that would naturally fit with their calendar in a three-and-a-half-year period of time. If it was 1,200 or 2,300 days, then it would fit naturally in a seven-year period. And so either way, here's what I want you to see. God was saying to Daniel through the angels, we don't know the specifics and that's not our end game, but God said their days are numbered. It will not last forever. Part of what I want you to continue to see through this study, Hardy Street, is this, that God is sovereignly in control. That would be a great place for you to lift your hands and say hallelujah. It would be a great place for you to say thank you, Lord. God is in control no matter who's in the White House. God is in control no matter what's going on at your house. God is in control of all of the nations. He sets up and tears down kings and kingdoms and his will will not be thwarted. That's why when God gives Daniel this picture beforehand, it helps us to have confidence because sometimes I know you. We've been saved and we feel entitled to our salvation after a while and we say God doesn't want anything bad to happen to me. No, sometimes God's will is that I'll go through dark days so that I can see that he is the light. And if you're walking through darkness right now, if you're walking through a valley, recognize that God is the one who owns the hills and the valleys, and God is the one who will lead us homeward. We need to see this with clarity. You see, we we see the picture of the big horn, the notable horn, Alexander, and he shows the power of the Antichrist. And then we see the little horn, this wicked leader that, that... gives with cruelty an insight into what will happen into the future and then we see the final horn the antichrist he literally came to this place of being wrecked by what he saw we'll get to that in a moment but let me tell you a story can i tell you a story thank you one or two of you i like story time It's one of my favorite stories from history. It's not in the Bible, but it's great, great history. There were living in those days a priest in a town called Moden, and Moden was not far from Jerusalem. And the priest's name was Mattathias. And Mattathias lived in this small little town of of Moden, and one of Antiochus's henchmen came to Moden, and he decided that he was going to make the Jews celebrate at a a pole of offering, an, an idolatrous pole to Saturn the god Saturn. And Mattathias said enough. He was done. He had grieved for his people. A pig had been slaughtered in the temple. There was no sacrifice going on. Nobody in their right mind as a Jew felt that there was any way right now to get close to God. And Mattathias was here. And he went Rambo on both of them. He killed the Jew that bowed down to Saturn. And he turned and he killed the officer that made the Jew bow down. This priest said, I'm done. This priest had several sons, and he started now this rebellion. And he gave this rebellion to his son. He died soon after. And his son, whose name was Jason, was taking up the torch of liberty and of freedom. And uh, it's pretty powerful. Excuse me, his name was Judas. And if you've read Jewish history, you know that Judas Maccabeus was his name. Judas the Hammer. And what a patriot he was. Mattathias kills this man for bowing down. He kills an officer for forcing it. He dies and his sons rise up in that same vein. Well, Judas Maccabeus rose up and fought. He rallied Jewish armies together and they defeated Antiochus. And they overcame him and won victory for the people and independence for the people. And you and I still see the effects of Judas Maccabeus today you say well pastor where in the world do we see that how do we see that well where what i want you to see is this judas maccabeus went back to the temple 
I, I imagine that every time they walked near it, they wept. But in 164 BC, he went back and he began to scrub and to clean and to reconsecrate the temple and to set it apart. And the very first thing he wanted to do was to reestablish the light. And he set up a lampstand. And there were candles upon that lampstand. And the, the order of consecration, if you go back and look at the dedication of the temple, it would take eight days. And he began to look for oil to light the lamps. And he found the oil. And he recognized that he only had one cruise of oil. And he said, that's not going to last the whole time. And they just prayed and they trusted God. And the, the record of antiquity, the story is that that one cruise of oil kept burning for eight solid days. The temple was reestablished. The priority of worship was reintroduced into Israel. And the people celebrated that God was watching over them. That Yahweh had blessed them. That Yahweh Yahweh had come into their lives. Well, this feast happened on the 25th of Kislev, which is around December 25th on our calendar. So maybe, just maybe, if you've got some Jewish friends around you in your life, they might say to you around December, happy what? Hanukkah. You see, for eight days they celebrated the Feast of Reconstruction. And they called the feast the Feast of Hanukkah. And today, you see that going on. They'll light a candle on the first day. And then on the second. All the way through to eight. It's a sign of victory and deliverance and dedication. When Judas Maccabeus stood up and fought back the cruelty and the evil of this Antichrist figure. The feast is also called the Festival of Lights. It's kind of interesting to me. I read this week a story of a, a, a Russian persecutor of the Jews. And one day he asked a Jew, what do you think the outcome will be from the wave of all the persecutions that continue upon your people? And the Jew answered that the result would be another feast. Think about that. Think about that. He said to this man, Pharaoh tried his absolute best to destroy the Jews and the result was Passover. Haman tried to destroy the Jews and the result was Purim. Antiochus Epiphanes tried to destroy the Jews and the result was the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah. Just try to destroy us and we'll start another feast. It's sort of an interesting way for God to demonstrate his special love for these people. But God didn't choose the Jews for the Jews' sake. You see, he chose them for the sake of everyone else. To put his display of glory out to the world. So that the rest of the world could be blessed. He promised Abraham that he would bless all nations through his people. God prophesied concerning Antiochus in words we can all understand. As we look back at history, and every single word of it came true. I don't have time to go through the death of Antiochus, but it was not at the hand of anyone but God. He found himself sick and isolated from others, and he died a miserable existence. So, so before we get to these last few verses and wrap this up, you take all the power of Alexander and all the cruelty of Antiochus, and you recognize that there is a future being that is coming let me ask you a question did Alexander happen figuratively or literally what, was he just a spiritual moral lesson or was he a real character in history was Antiochus just a principle or was he a force or an influence or a concept no he was a person and I want to tell you just as surely as the prophecies concerning these two men have come true and have come to happen the prophecy concerning the king of fierce countenance that we'll see in a moment will come true literally come to pass and the stage is being set right now would you agree with that we're seeing things in our lifetime that we never would have comprehended. I have, even as a little boy, said, how in the world can the whole world tune in in one direction? Well, the Internet solved that problem. 
How in the world could one man rise to world power? Well, we're seeing in this age of communication and this age of information that the stage is set for a cashless society where people would be dependent upon some system. And there's this incredible yearning and longing for somebody to give answers. And the Bible says that he would come with great wisdom and treachery and he would lead the people astray and ultimately call on them to worship him. He was a picture of Antiochus. It's pretty amazing to me that we begin to see the things that are to come in light of the things that have happened. Pastor Scott, what am I to do with all this? I mean, really, you started with that question, so what? You give me this sad and sick story of persecution and the coming Antichrist, what should my response be? Well, maybe we can get a clue this morning from Daniel. Look at verse 27. Pretty remarkable to see. I, Daniel, fainted. (laughs) It says, I was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterwards, I got up and performed duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it when he saw the vision listen to me people when he saw the vision this may be the most important thing that I tell you as he saw it as clearly in his mind it caused him to be emotionally drained he fainted he literally got sick for several days what would cause that there's only one thing to my understanding that would explain that Daniel saw that his people under the persecution of these tyrants and he realized that many of them would go down to their graves being destroyed by the enemy I couldn't help but wonder why aren't the people of Hardy Street Baptist Church more broken hearted for the lost why aren't the people of the Southern Baptist Convention our great denomination that touts all of the baptisms and all of the church planning why aren't we more broken for the lost because we're satisfied we're saved so we sit and we soak and we sour and God never intended your salvation to be the end it's a means to an end that the glory of God would reach the nations that you would be like a sponge filled up and then wrung back out that the message of the gospel would go to the ends of the earth and it goes to the ends of the earth by men and women and boys and girls who understand that they have a sphere of influence you have people that you meet every single day that I will never come in contact with and God didn't call me to go share with them he called you he planted you in your subdivision he planted you at your job he planted you in your school he put you in your circle of influence so that you might share the gospel and then he gave all of us the responsibility to go to the ends of the earth it's not home or there it's not Jerusalem or the ends of the earth it's not Jerusalem then Judea then Samaria it's all of it he said and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth folks we can't just rest idly by we can't just sit by we can't just write checks and say somebody else will go no we need to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and I pray that we would have the same mindset that we would get emotionally involved oh that we could hear the sound of the trumpet at any moment and recognize there's work to be done before it happens How many of you have loved ones? You don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have loved ones in your immediate family? Or or even by that, no further removed than your grandparents or your nieces or nephews or your grandkids who are outside of Jesus Christ? It ought to break your heart. We preach the awfulness and the ugliness of agony and brimstone and fire and hell, but I want to tell you something. For everyone who's left alive after the church is raptured on this globe, before there's hell, there's tribulation, which is nothing more than hell on earth, and then hell is worse than that. Do we really believe that? If we do, it changes our lives. 
When I read that the Antichrist will be worse than Antiochus, who let blood fall at a whim from his victims, I look around at people that I love and I pray, oh God, don't let that happen to one single solitary soul. Prophecy is only good when it has direct application to what's going on right now. And seeing these things, we purify ourselves. As Peter said, and we read in the beginning, seeing that these things are true, what godly lives ought you and I live? If we really believe what we study, it'll change our lives. We'll look around for lost people. We will do so with great compassion and emotion, and we will say to them, while there is time, be saved, because judgment is coming. Amen? If that is truly true, then our response to truth ought to be immediate change toward obedience. Repent. Today, within the sound of my voice, if there's anyone, whether you're watching online or you're here in this room and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, recognize the beautiful gift of grace. Jesus died so that we would not have to experience separation from God. You see, death in the Bible means nothing more, nothing less than separation. God is the source of life and our sin cuts us off and so that is death. God is not cruelly punishing you and saying that you somehow need to be away from my presence we choose that we move that direction we have left him and my church family that's here you may be visiting with us but I say this often hell is ultimately a place where unrepentant sinners get exactly what they've always wanted away from God God I don't want you God I don't need you I don't want your authority I don't want your control I don't want your rules I don't want anything about you not recognizing his love and his provision and his care but I don't want you and they die and leave this world and enter eternity and they are separated from God forever they get what they ask for and again most of you have been around me long enough to know I'm not a hellfire and brimstone kind of preacher I'm just preaching the text and the gospel is not that people are going to hell that's bad news the good news is nobody has to Amen? And you today can be saved. We're going to sing one song, and as we sing today, we call this a hymn of invitation or a time of decision, a time of commitment. And as we stand in just a moment and sing, they're going to be prayer partners here at the front, and they'll simply take God's word and pray with you and show you how you can be saved. Now, to everyone else who is saved, I want you in your heart and in your mind to think of one person just one that you know that is not saved one person that you know that is far from God one person that you know that if Jesus came back tonight they would spend eternity separated they would be left here on earth to face the cruelty and the power of the antichrist and ultimately the judgment of God and would you pray for that one person and this week Begin focusing on times and ways that you can share the good news with them. If you don't know how, we'll help you. We'll go with you. We would, would love to train and equip every person. We ought to be an army of compassion going to the world saying, Jesus saves. And while there's time, come to him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Lord, thank you for this time. And God, I pray that we would not see this as history past. And we would not see this just as something that will happen in the future, but we would recognize the implications today. God, would you reach into this place, that person that is struggling in their hearts. They, they're honestly striving and wrestling with where they stand with Jesus and where they would spend eternity. God, would you call them today out of darkness into light and let them be gloriously and radically saved. And Father, for those who are saved, you tell us to pray to you as the Lord of the harvest that you would send laborers into the harvest field. God, I pray that our church would become an army of compassion and grace and love and mercy, sharing the good news of Jesus everywhere we go. May it be so in Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. If you need to come, come. If you need to join this church, these prayer partners are here and they would love to tell you how you can be a part of this church. God's doing great things here. And we need more laborers to lock arms and hearts with us and to go out into the harvest field of the pine belt. Let's sing together.